Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 164. Now that's Zen. This week, we speak with spiritual teacher Adyashanti about his early training in the Zen tradition and about the evolution of his teaching style. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. And I'm joined today over the interweb with spiritual teacher Adya Shanti. Adya, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate your time and looking forward to this discussion a lot. Oh, you're welcome, Vince. I'm really, really happy to be here with you. Yeah. And I figured for most people, they've probably heard of you if they've been in the kind of Dharma world. You have a lot of uh, really amazing books out and some audio material through Sounds True, and you've have different articles that have appeared in some of the various Buddhist publications. So I have a feeling a lot of people have a sense of your background, but if they don't, we're kind of sort of explore that together too. And I thought maybe the best way to do that to start with is just to speak with you about your history as a Buddhist practitioner, and now you're teaching as a non-aligned spiritual teacher. As I understand it, you spent 14 years with a Zen teacher in California, is that right? Yeah, I spent 15 years with a Zen teacher in California, very little known Zen teacher. Her name was Arvis. She retired about four or five years ago. And I got her name, this is going back when I was 20 years old, so 27 years ago, I got her name out of the back of a a book that Ram Dass had written. And sure enough, she was uh, within 15 minutes of where I was born and raised. And I was thrilled to find a Zen teacher to think that was the one so close. And so I called up, and the next thing I knew, I was at her home, because that's where she taught from. She had herself studied with a lot of the early Zen teachers that came here from Japan, like Soan and Yasutani and, and others as well. Her last teacher was, pardon me for forgetting his name, he was the one who ran L.A. Zen Center, Mizumi. Mizumi, yeah. Yeah, Mizumi was her sort of last teacher, and he used to actually come to her house. And again, this is going back almost 30 years, or probably 30 years ago, if not more, so there was very little Zen and wasn't as accessible as it is now. So he used to go there and do retreats at her house in Las Gatas. And after years of doing that and her being with him, one day he just said, you know, you should do this. You should teach. You don't need me here anymore to teach. So she started to teach. And she... She taught out of her house. She had robes, and she used to wear robes, but long ago, before I got to her, she had put her robes away and just had decided she didn't want to start, you know, a center or a temple or any of those kind of forms. And so she just did it in a very sort of, kind of very quiet way. She was a very kind of quiet, hidden Zen teacher, you might say, right in my own backyard. That's great. That sounds like a great find. Yeah, it it was for me. It was a really fantastic find. I mean, admittedly, when I I was a young kid, you know, 20 years old or so at the time, and and I was attracted because I had read some books on Zen, and so I had this sort of, you know, mystical kind of idea of what it was going to be like, and I always had 
created sort of visions of, you know, misty topped mountains and little Zen temples hidden away up, and, uh, and, you know, and people in their, you know, robes and all the kind of things that you kind of imagine, you know, when your imagination gets gets away with you. And, and so when I first showed up there, and it ended up being in a house in Las Gatas, I was, of course, quite surprised. And it took me a couple of years to kind of get beyond imagination of what I thought it should look like, and it took me a couple of years to really realize what was really going on there with her, that even though it looked quite ordinary, that there was something really quite profound and beautiful that she was offering, and that that she really was, that she kind of really embodied. You know, she just did it in, the, in a sort of very ordinary-looking package, hmm. And I understand that you also, in addition to studying with her, you were doing retreats and things with some other Zen teachers. Is that true? Yeah, well, I, I told her I wanted to do one of these um, retreats that I had read about at the time, you know, a, a typical Zen sashin. She would do short retreats where we do all-day sittings and have private interviews with her and stuff. But I wanted to go to one of these Zen sashins that I had read about. And so she said, well, there's this guy up in Sonoma, Sonoma Mountain Zen Center, Bill Kwong, she says, I met him once, and I really had a good feel about him, and I think he might really be a good person for you to go and do a retreat with. A few months after that, I found myself up at Sonoma Mountain Zen Center doing a retreat with Kwong, and we, you know, I did retreats with him probably, I would do one or two a year for probably seven or eight years, something like that, maybe longer. Yeah. But, you know, I did my kind of weekly, I would see Arvis almost every week, every Sunday morning. I would, I would be at her, at her home with anywhere from 8 to 15 others. And it yeah. sounded like, uh, when I saw you writing about this time, it sounded like you were really pretty hardcore about it, too. Like, you were really into it. Yeah, I, you know, looking back on it, it was almost like, it's kind of mysterious how I just read, literally read the word enlightenment in the in a book, and it was like it lit something inside of me. I didn't know what the word meant. I didn't know didn't know where it was leading to, but it, it literally just sort of lit something inside of me. It was almost like, I like to explain it, like almost like catching a disease, this incredibly powerful seeking disease. I just thought, I have to find out what this thing called enlightenment is. And I didn't really have any reason why I had to find out. My spiritual search, I think, unlike a lot of people, was, wasn't motivated by suffering, by angst, or by grief, or I think a lot of the emotions that are part of really what fuel people's spiritual search. I mean, there was probably some of that going on unconsciously, but for the most part, it was just, I have to find out what this enlightenment thing is. And it was literally like... One day I was going around just being a regular guy, and the next day it was like a light switch turned on, and I distinctly remember getting up out of bed one morning, and I just knew I was sort of struck with this little realization. I just thought to myself, my life has completely changed. Hmm. Whatever direction I thought I was going in, it's completely altered, and it's about something else entirely. I didn't even know what that was going to be. My life was no longer sort of in my control, you might say, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. This sort of, sort of spiritual seeking thing took over my life from one day to the next. Yeah. And 
it sounds like after a long time of training and doing a bunch of stuff that you sort of had a resolution to that original disease, like the disease kind of ran its course and you felt like uh, there was a sort of awakening or a resolution of that. At that point, you, as I understand it, sort of decided not to teach within the Zen tradition. That actually came later. The, okay. the, the, first, the first sort of shift that I had, whatever you know, one wants to call that shift, was when I was 25, and that was that shift really kind of brought an end to the seeking energy. Hmm. Because in a certain sense, what I realized that was that, at least the way I had it hooked up in my mind at the time, was I am what I'm seeking. So all of a sudden, the seeking didn't make any sense anymore. What I was seeking was something that I no longer saw as separate from me. I would love to say that, you know, that was the end of my spiritual <laughs> search. Mm. It was sort of the end of the seeking, but it wasn't the end of the search. I know that's paradoxical, but really I kept, you know, very much in the tradition and very much seeking externally, but internally it wasn't a looking for something outside of myself. Mm. I, actually, what I was trying to do was clarify that experience that happened when I was 25. There was a very powerful shift and I knew that I was what I was seeking, but there was something about it that I wasn't completely clear on. I knew it wasn't clarified. I knew it wasn't finished. So that's really what I was looking at. Like almost the koan, the spontaneous question that arose in my mind is, I know that I am this. I didn't have a name for it. I know that I am this, but I don't know what this is. That was kind of the, the next form that it took. I chewed on that for another six or seven years. Mm. Was there a sense that, I get the sense what you're saying happened at 25 is sort of akin to like what they would call Kensho or, or like, uh, like an initial awakening of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'd pushed myself to the edge of insanity and, and at the moment I kind of gave up. The moment I was defeated is when everything opened up. Yeah. It was kind of like, it, w- it was an initial open, initial Kensho, I guess you'd say. The thing that really stuck with me, though, is it removed all fear, which is kind of a strange thing to happen, to remove all the fear out of a 25-year-old male. Do you know? I do. I'm 26 now. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you remove remove all the fear, and, uh, you know, it's like you're half clear or half spiritually awake. It's that other half without any fear to kind of hold it in check that was kind of a, a little bit of a wild ride for the next four or five years, as I guess you would say, spiritually speaking, I sort of worked through some sort of deep karmic patterns Mm. that kind of had to work themselves out, you know, that it wasn't just going to all happen on the cushion. I kind of had to get out there and actually do some of this stuff to burn it out of my system, I guess you might say. And the culmination, I guess, of that is is what you talk about later in your early 30s? Yeah. 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 And is that the point at which you sort of felt like a movement away from the Zen tradition towards something novel or something new? You know, the odd thing was I never really had that feeling. That was never a decision. It wasn't something I planned on. You know, at some point after that, my teacher then asked me to start teaching. And so I did. And when I started, it looked just like what I was used to. In fact, I used to carry around the Zabfus and the Zabutans, the sitting cushions, and I used to wear my robes that I had, and we'd do meditation, and I would do very short talks, and we'd do walking meditation in sort of a very traditional Zen form, 
even though I was didn't have like a temple or I wasn't a priest or anything, but I, I used those forms. And the thing was that it just sort of started to evolve is what I found is when I would do a talk, like a short talk, maybe a 10, 15 minute talk, and then I'd see if anybody had any questions. And what I realized was I could help people work through what they were going through when we would dialogue together. I figured we could find resolution and dialogue to something that might, that they might have been working on on their cushion for three or four years. And then they could sort of suddenly have some real resolution, some real shift out of it. And I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. And so over time, I just made a little more room for the talks and the question and answer. And that kind of got a little longer and a little longer. And there was a little less sitting, although there's always been some silence, some quiet time to sit before I do any teaching. And it just sort of happened very naturally. I guess you might say. In fact, it was a little unsettling to me at the beginning because as time went on and I was doing more and more of this uh, sort of a different style, I'd go back to my teacher and I would say, I think you might want to come see what I'm doing because it's evolving into something quite different than you were doing. And she would just say, look, I trust you. Just go ahead and do it. It's all fine. Of course, I'd tell her what I was doing. She'd say, it's all fine. It was sort of like one of these jokes, you know, where every joke, like on the third time something happens, you know, like it's always one, two, three, and then the punchline. It was, a, this wasn't a joke, but it, I went to her once. She said, I trust you just doing it. Some, maybe a month or two later, I went back to her again. And I said, I think you really might want to check this out because I had a great respect for her and I didn't want to be doing anything that would, I wanted her to kind of take a look at it, make sure I wasn't going astray. Right. You know, because I really had a lot of respect for her, and I knew that anybody can go astray. And the third time I went back to her and suggested she might want to come see what I was doing, she shook her finger right in front of my nose, and she said quite sternly, she said, I thought I told you that it's okay, and I don't ever want to hear you ask that question again. Wow. And she was rarely that stern with anybody. And so it, energetically, it felt like she kind of got a knife out and cut a cord that I was holding on to, kind of like being kicked out of the nest entirely. <laughs> Don't ever come back. Curiously enough, a few weeks later, she did show up, and I was teaching on a Wednesday night. And it was a Wednesday night that was just a few days before I was going to start doing the first retreat that I ever taught. And so the people who showed up on that Wednesday night, almost all of them were going to be going on a retreat with me that weekend. And the atmosphere was really very charged, very, very charged, very powerful. And at that time, I was still sitting on a meditation cushion when I would give my talks. And I was sitting there and I was giving a talk and then I, we did question and answers. And my aunt... My aunt had started to come see me, my aunt, who was probably 60 at the time. She raised her hand and she asked me a question, and we dialogued, and before I knew it, she just burst into tears, the kind of tears that are between laughter and sadness. She burst into tears, ran up from the back of the room, up to me, put her head in my lap, and laid down and just was sobbing. And so I put my hand on her head, and I was kind of just being with her, and she just kept sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And, I, and all of a sudden, I understood. I was like, oh, she's not going to stop doing this. 
so I just rested my hand gently on her head, and we went on. And I asked her the next question. And the very next question, someone was talking, and they had some insight during that, and they started hysterically laughing uncontrollably for about 10 or 15 minutes. And so went the evening, very sort of unusually charged, powerful evening. And, you know, there was my teacher at the back of the room, this wonderful lady who had trained, you know, very, very traditional and Zen teacher in many ways, certainly what she was exposed to. And I remember thinking when the evening was done, wow, I wonder what she's going to make of this. And I have, can still visualize her as people were sort of starting to leave the room. I saw her on the far side of the room and she was just looking at me and not giving anything away on her face. And when the last person left the room, she just walked up to me and she put that finger right in my face again and shook it in my face and she said, now that's Zen. And you can imagine the great relief I felt. Wow. Great relief. And then she told me about her experience of some of these early Zen masters, Yasutani and so on and some others and how sort of dynamic and alive those retreats were and how people would just spontaneously start crying or laughing and she said, you know, people had a lot of insights and there was a lot of breakthroughs. And what she saw was, as Zen kind of got more and more stable in this country, what she thought is a lot of that dynamic quality started to sort of disappear. And it became just about sitting quietly and hush-hush, don't laugh, don't cry, don't disturb anybody, just sit still. And she had said, you know, we did a lot of silent sitting with those early teachers, but she said it was very dynamic and it reminded her of that. So, of course, I felt really quite good about that, even though the form that I was teaching was evolving and changing. Yeah. You know, so maybe that gives you a sense of, uh, from the outside, it might look like, okay, this guy sort of just made a conscious decision not to use all the traditional forms and but it just sort of evolved. It was very natural. There was no decision about it. Yeah, so it sounds like from the inside there was just this natural evolution toward doing whatever works. You know, I, that was a phrase I was going to say because I literally had that in my mind like a mantra constantly. The first probably four or five years that I taught was, what works? What really works? And as far as I was concerned, everything was up for investigation, everything could be questioned, no matter how old the form, whether it was something I was doing or not. That, I was really, really interested in what works, because I thought that's the bottom line. Because, of course, I wasn't like a priest, and I didn't have a temple, so, of course, my aim was not necessarily to carry on the tradition as such, like a priest that would be part of their mission someone that has a temple that would be part of their mission, and rightly so, to sort of carry on the tradition of it. I was always interested in the awakening part of it from the very beginning, and that kind of, I think, um, informed me when I started to teach, too. That was the piece of the puzzle that I was really the most interested in. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th 
through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.